On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Marillion's clutching its straws. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Ken Gregory, and Paul Zotter as we continue into the fish era of Marillion's catalog with Clutching at Straws. All right, gentlemen, the penultimate episode in our Fishmar Redux series. Um, although the next episode, besides themselves, is actually not a redux because we never discussed it. But, be that as it may, here we are back for episode four in our revisit of the Fish Era Marillion timeline. With, in my opinion, the greatest of the four. Clutching at straws. Freaking love it. I'll give my little preamble spiel here just quickly because, and I kind of, I mentioned this just briefly in the last episode. Clutching at straws, you know, it was one of those things that I was aware of at, certainly at the time that I bought Misplaced Childhood or shortly thereafter. The reason being a girl that I was dating happened to have a cassette copy of Clutching at Straws. She, by all accounts and by my memory, she knew nothing about Marillion or cared. I have no idea why she had it. I was aware she had it before I bought Misplaced Childhood, but I'm pretty sure I never even bothered with it. But as soon as I had that experience with Misplaced Childhood, I spent the rest of the time that I dated her, which actually wasn't all that long, listening <laughs> to, to, to that sorry. cassette in her I car. Just, I just can't resist. I mean, th- talk about irony, right? You're dating a woman who has a cassette of the most obscure uh, progressive rock band of the day. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's just I've already like received criticism of my my misfortunate statements about women in progressive rock. But still, come on. That is just choice. Choice. I'm going to use the 1987 term. That is choice. Joe. <laughs> choice irony. <laughs> and that being said, I listened to it at the time more out of principle than anything else. I don't know that I was particularly attracted to or engaged with this album. Clutching at Straws has been, for me, a bit of a slow burn. It it took me a good number of years before I, I really connected with it. And my connection has just, much like the, is it the uh, patina? Is that the, the phrase on a, on a guitar? It, it's just deepened over time. And now it's this deep, lustrous color that just adds character to the whole thing. When we talked about this on the ranking episode and everything else, I was extolling its virtues. And and Ken, I know you're not a, a big fan of this, certainly from a, a tone or a subject matter perspective. But man, when I put this on after Misplaced Childhood to prepare for this, and due to scheduling difficulties, we actually had an extra week. So I've been messing around with this for... I guess almost two weeks at this point. Holy mother of all that is good in the world. It's just fantastic. I I mean, I just, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It makes me smile. It makes me ironically happy because it's a damn bleak album, but it's so well done. Holy shit. 
The yeah. patina is a green or brown film on the surface of bronze or similar metals produced <laughs> by oxidation. Oh, well, that's not really what I meant. What is it? Um, I, I mean, maybe it is what I meant, but I was thinking about, yes. you know, when, when you've got like a, you know, a, a natural neck or fretboard and, and it gets that kind of deeper color over time. I believe that's oxidation. I think it's legit. It's funny, Joe, because I think you're you you might be thinking of like the relic that they do to guitars, maybe. I don't know. But how old am I now? I've been playing guitar for Jesus, thirty-four years. And I've never once heard the word patina associated with guitar. So of course I did exactly what Ken did and I did a quick Google. So I'll put it in the show notes for the rest of uh the listeners in case they they too are unfamiliar with the term, but well done, Joe. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is is clutching his draws gets better over time. For me, yeah. I mean, my my connection to it just continues to get stronger and stronger the more time goes by. I don't then, think I've um, ever smiled listening to to the record. Like, there's nothing. It's just even even at the best parts, I don't think I've felt anything but anger and melancholy oh it just it it cranks my engine man i'm telling you wow it it's funny you should say that joe because I, I i swear i i was smiling this <laughs> week um I, I i was just like i was just in heaven going can this get any better and i'm just like holy fucking shit this is such an amazing album and i i i agree with you joe it does get better and better as it goes. I mean, I, this was the album that really, <clears throat> I remember listening to this in my dorm room at Berkeley and being like, wow, this is, this is something else. No one else knew what the hell I was listening to. Like, I mean, it's just like, there was only a few people who knew who Merlion was, but I was, uh, it, it's an album that, that really called to me. And just from the start, uh, and, I, you know, last week we talked about how, uh, you know, misplaced childhood, that wasn't the case. It, it took me um, qu- quite a while to really jump on board and appreciate it for what it is. But this album was is different. This album, really from the start, um, lyrically, conceptually, musically, I mean, I, there's a lot of things that I want to say musically, but I mean, generally... I can't say enough about this album. All I'll say is, not only is this my favorite Marillion album, but this is definitely in my top five of all time. This is in the top five. Wow. This is an album sure. of albums. This wow. album make does make me smile. It just makes me um, giddy. I mean, I just I listen to the lyrics. I'm moved. The melodies are there. Everything just grabs me, and I'm hook, line, and sinker. I'm in this album, and I've been in this album since I first heard it. This sort of is like the perfect album, and I I just can't say enough of it about it. Hmm. One of the other things, I'll I'll jump back in here for a second, Tom. I'm sorry, Ken. What you were saying? Oh, I wanted to find middle ground here. I am not by any means a clutching at straws hater but I am not going to put this in my top five. And Joe, you already alluded to my issues. It's just content of the darkest nature. He can't get through the first verse without hookers and cocaine. 
And it's not the, the, the happy side of hookers and cocaine. He's, he's just very remorseful from the moment this album starts. You know, I, I would expect an arc where the first one or two songs would be happy party songs, and then things would take a dark twist. No, he's just going to tell you that everything's shit from the beginning, and he's going to make you wallow in his shit for an entire album. My background is I've always been a Henry Miller fan, a uh, Kerouac fan, Charles Bukowski fan. I read a lot of that stuff. And I know he, he mentions Kerouac in, in this. And I think that he is thrown into this life. There's a sort of romantic nature. When I read Charles Bukowski, there's a sort of romantic nature of someone who does what they want, when they want, when they're young and they live in bars, they're living the life of the poet that they want to be. And but you look back on some of the stuff and it's sort of immature and, you know, it doesn't really have the same weight when you're 50 as it does when you're when you're younger. But it's it's painting a story. You know, I mean, I have the same criticism, Ken, with you know, Walt Disney films, because I think that they're all happy. I'm like, why are these people all freaking happy? They're, Damn they're them. A story. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're telling a story. They want to get the story out. I think, you know, Fish is, is telling a story. It may not be for everybody, but it's, it's, he's painting a picture. It's maybe not what everyone's life is, but there are stories that are, that are depressing. I was sort of taken back. And I, I mentioned this last week. Now that I, I know that Ken isn't really on board with a lot of this earlier stuff, I'm really taken back a bit because I always think of Ken when I hear these albums. And I'm not just saying this, just I really do. Like, Fish has, like, I might have the kind of, you know, Fish voice, but, like, you, Ken has the writing, like, the Fish phrasing and the writing influence. I mean, you may say it's from, you know, Peter Gabriel or whatever, and you know better than me, but to me, when I hear early Marillion, like I, I think of Ken all the Ken, I think of you all the time. I'm like, oh, that's Ken. And then so I just, I, I, I sort of now that I know you're not into it, I, it's sort of like something pulled away a little bit from. from well, I mean, I didn't finish my preamble. Um, the way that I get into this is, I imagine that the band members had no idea what Fish was saying until the very last rehearsal or in the very first recording session. And they had this beautiful, beautiful music that just really worked as an album. And no one, there was no filter for fish because no one knew what he was saying. And I just pretend I'm in a rehearsal with Marillion and they're playing this gorgeous clutching at straws instrumental thing. And fish is just some floaty thing over top that may or may not be interesting. So and if I focus on the music, I dig it. I definitely am in the camp with Ken here. Two things this round that I wasn't aware of is at age 50, some of this is like, okay, I get it. You know, it's, it's, it's almost parallel to like Joe, you know, talking about how mad Roger Waters was and we were going to listen to how mad he was for like the next three albums or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of that in, in this for me, but I didn't realize how much turmoil there was going on in the band at the time this was being recorded, you know, Mark Kelly, he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Came across like, oh, I've got drinking problems and drug problems. I'm a rock star. My life is so hard kind of thing. And and he sort of came at it like it was immature. And it struck me because 
I think there are really great moments where lyrically it fits with the mood of the music. The music really complements the vocals. I think that this is by far Fish's most musical and lyrical delivery of melody. And there are so many places that it works that I just found myself over the last week as I was um, reading this article about how the band was just in disarray. I was just amazed by that. I was just, I was just amazed. A lot going on there. Couple things that, I, and I'm just going to try to cover a whole bunch of stuff here as quickly as I can. With regards to Ken, your point of you know it's right out of the gate, bleak from the beginning. One of the issues that I brought up with misplaced childhood last week was I couldn't really get behind the the, the main character or protagonist, if we're going to use that word, because I felt that it was all a little too deflective. Oh, I did this, but it wasn't my fault. Oh, this happened, but it wasn't really my fault. I find that to be really, really grating. One of the things that I connect with on this album so much is the fact that I think it is a a raw, unfiltered look in the mirror from our character. I'm not going to say fish, but certainly from the character. Having had moments in, in my life where, you know, you get to a point where you have to sort of sit in a room and you have to be honest with yourself. What is really going on? What do I really want? And I think that's what, what kind of draws me in. Besides the fact that the music is fucking phenomenal. And lyrically, I think this may very well be the pinnacle of, of Fish's, you know, lyrical expression as well. So there's that. Another interesting thing that gets me about this album is it sits at such a freaking crossroad of Marillion's career. The bonus tracks here, and when you see how what the band was working on became, you know, Season's End and Fish's first two albums, it's fascinating to see how they took whatever parts they had and, and took it somewhere else. I haven't had time to really go into that as much as I would have liked. And we made the comment last time about, at this point, Marillion is musically fully formed and things will carry through. I mean, there were moments in the last week listening to this where I was brought not only to Season's End and Holidays in Eden, but as far into the catalog as Marbles. And it's like, mm. oh, this point's, you know, there. So it, it, I find it to be fascinating um, with regards to that. And then one other thing, when we talk about you know, some of the drama surrounding making this album. There's a little section in the Prague Magazine article we mentioned last episode where it talks about this. And it said, by the time Marillion started work on a follow-up album, the cracks were showing. Clutching at Straws, released in 1987, would be Fish's last with the band. Making it was not a happy experience. Quote, I had a lot to deal with on a personal and professional level, including my ego, he admits. Quote, I floated off into my own anal world and was a bit of an asshole. Rothery laughs when he hears this. Quote, listen, I took myself far too seriously at that time, too. I was all about the music and the art, man. You know, I think that's going to, to show up when we get into to the music here. So I just, it sits at such a pivot point, and I do think it's such a really wonderful marriage. Content or intent aside... Musically, I think it's wonderful, and I think, you know, just on the 
a sheer technical score, the, the, the lyrics rate very high, even if you don't like, you know, their ultimate expression. Can we negotiate that? Because I may not be thrilled with all of the lyrics, but I'm willing to submit this could be peak vocal performance for Fish. And that, that's another really good point. If you listened to the, the bonus tracks, when, when, when Fish is, I guess, writing and figuring things out, it can be really rough. So somehow when they recorded this album, they really brought it together and, and were able to get Fish to deliver something vocally much more than we've seen from him. So I agree 100% on that. Ken, maybe we can talk quickly about uh, what else was going on in 1987 besides the long-awaited follow-up to 90125. This will be a quick one. Um, yeah, there's a two-year span just about, but it's not a very dense period for Prague. What we need to be prepared for is the the competition that is on the market in 1987. Starting in 1985, June we just talked about Misplaced Childhood. That was followed up by Asia Astra, Saga Behavior, Rush, Power Windows, jumping into 1986. Peter Gabriel So, Genesis, Invisible Touch. We've been through all these Queens Reich Rage for Order. It's a very poppy time in 86. The pop prog kind of thing happening in uh, 1987 is, is, is very uh, competitive. Roger Waters, Radio Chaos, Marillion, Closing at Straws, Pink Floyd, A Momentary Lapse of Roger, Rush, <laughs> <laughs> Hold Your Fire, and yes, Big Generator. So quite quite, quite a year there. Yeah, like you said, it's sort of that all that progressive pop, like all of those progressive bands are moving more towards a more accessible sound where they've already uh, gone there. You know, we're starting our senior year of high school. Ken, you and I are in physics class pontificating about a momentary last reason, uh, sharing stories about our trips to JFK. There is a whole host of crazy things happening in like popular music. Like the Joshua Tree is happening around here. This is when I think a, a huge group of us uh, went to see, I think we all went separately, went to see you 2 at JFK as well. And I will always couple that show with Iron Butterflies in Agata de Vida because after the day after we we went to that show, I don't think I got home until like four in the morning. And and then we played Tom, your I think it was your your one of your father's first company picnics that he had us play at for whatever reason we we played inagata devita we played that song and so i just remember like being there in my youtube u2 concert shirt playing inagata vita and then going home and like passing out on like the family room floor <laughs> watching tv at like at like eight o'clock at night so that's the kind of stuff that's happening we are in the throes of bon jovi's living on a prayer George Michael, I Want Your Sex. Can't have it. Duran Duran had Notorious. These are the, the pop music influences. Crowded House coming in with Don't Dream It's Over. Um, that was, I think that was pretty much their breakthrough, or maybe it was something so strong I can't remember. But White Snake also, uh, Here I Go Again. And in the spring of 88 is when Tom walked in with Operation Mindcrime in his hand which was life-changing. So there, there is so much 
going on at, at this time that's shaping so much of what we're listening in the future, it's almost not surprising to me that that when Joe said, oh, Paul, I know you really like Misplaced Childhood. You should listen to Clutching at Straws. It seems to be what everybody else likes. And Joe, I think you still, the jury was still out for you on it, but you gave me a cassette in the context of all of that I just said, like I'm listening to it in my car and suffering for for the first time of what would become many times of having to adjust the volume to hear <laughs> when the song was starting or when it wasn't while listening to Marillion. It was just a different feel. And it took me a, a really, really long time to, to kind of break through and, and get into this. I can't help but think that all of that music that led up to me listening to this impacted the way it hit me compared to something like Misplaced Childhood, which I would put in, you know, in the, I don't know if I would put it in the top five, but it's definitely, you know, when people say, well, what are the most, you know, greatest albums that you've, you know, Misplaced Childhood is always in here. This one doesn't quite, quite make it. Although I might give it the nod that it's, it's the better album. As Ken mentioned, Clutching at Straws was released in June of, of 87, was recorded at Westside Studios, in London, released on the label EMI and produced by Chris Kimsey. Band members, the now standard for this era, Fish on vocals, Rothery on guitars, Kelly on keyboards, Roavis on bass, and Mosley on drums. Additional musicians become important here when we talk about Tessa Niles. Tessa Niles, if you click on her wiki page, freaking phenomenal, man. She, she was everywhere in the late 80s and early 90s. Say what you want to about some of these bands, but clearly she was she was a part. Paul, you mentioned Duran Duran's Notorious. She showed up on that as well as Big Thing. Then Jericho, Men Without Hats, The Pet Shop Boys, she showed up on a couple of theirs. Steve Winwood, The Escape Club, uh, Tears for Fears, she showed up on The Seeds of Love. So, I mean, wow. just, she was everywhere. Chris Kimsey is credited as... Um, backing vocals on Incommunicado, and John Cavanaugh was Dr. Finlay on Torch Song. Track listing is Hotel Hobbies, Warm Wet Circles, That Time of the Night, The Short Straw, Going Under, Just for the Record, White Russian, then Incommunicado, Torch Song, Slancha Mata, whatever, still can't say that fucking song, Sugar Mice, The Last Straw, and then Happy Ending. Clutching at Straws is the fourth studio album by the British neo-progressive rock band Marillion, released in 1987. It was the last album with lead singer Fish, who left the band in 1988 and is a concept album. Although Clutching at Straws did not achieve the sales of its predecessor, the number one album Misplaced Childhood, spending 15 weeks on the UK album chart, the shortest chart residency of any of Marillion's first four studio albums, it was still an immediate commercial success becoming the second highest charting Marillion album by entering the chart at number two. It produced three UK top 40 singles, Incommunicado, Sugar Mice, and Warm Wet Circles. The album has received critical acclaim, being listed in Q Magazine's 50 Best Recordings of the Year. It has been described by AllMusic as an, quote, unheralded masterpiece, and Rolling Stone placed it at number 37 in its countdown of the 50 Greatest Prog Rock Albums of All Time. In 1999, a two-CD remastered version with additional B-sides and demos was released, including detailed liner notes from all the original members, including Fish. That's what we have in front of us, gentlemen. Hey, why is Going Under gone 
Was that like not a part of the original? So, so going under in more ways than one is the hey you of clutching at straws. I it, totally agree. It was it was not on the original vinyl version, and I want to say it was also not on the cassette version that Marie Dewitt had. It did, however, show up on the CD version, and it has been included ever since. Yeah, I, I could do without it. I'm just saying. I was aware of this. Somehow I knew about about that song. I had it on a B-side of something or another, and I absolutely loved it. And when I finally purchased the CD and was able to hear it sort of all the time, I was very pleased. I w- thought about that exact same thing today. I was like, you know what it is about this song? It's basically like, hey, you. I mean, it's just a lot earlier in the proceedings. Now, <laughs> yes, and I haven't come around to liking it yet. <laughs> it, it, I think it's I think it's a harder sell in some regards. Now, <laughs> I, I have I have opened at I believe the first two of these Fishmar episodes by gushing on the lyrical opening of the album. I don't believe I did it last episode. Although, who knows? Ken, you mentioned the lyrics right out of the gate. So my plan was to make it three out of four and gush about how this freaking song, this album, opens. Hotel hobbies patting Dawn's hollow corridors. Bellboys checking out the hookers in the bar. Slug-like fingers trace the star-spangled clouds of cocaine on the mirror. The short straw took its bow. Now... There are a couple of things, and I'm going to pause here for a second, that I just totally jam on with this album lyrically. One is the decision of Fish to present the protagonist as a writer and not a rock star. I think that gives him certain imagery that he can and does play with. And then, obviously, this idea of straws, the short straw particularly. Now, when we talk about this, there are numerous interpretations of that, you know, drink straws for cocktails when you're talking about potentially straws for snorting cocaine off mirrors. There are a whole bunch of different ways. The idea of when you you have a, a tough task and you draw straws and the short straw is the person who has to do that task. There, there's a, a lot of different layers here that he plays with consistently throughout this whole album. And I just love it. Every time one of those things pops up, it's like, ooh, I get a little goose. So I, I digress. Mm. The telltale talking of the last cigarette, marking time in the packet as the whiskey sweat lies like discarded armor on an unmade bed, and a familiar craving is crawling in his head. Let's think about that for a second. The telltale talking of the last cigarette, marking time in the packet. I was never a smoker, but I know exactly that sound he's describing. It's absolutely wonderful. And the only sign of life is the ticking of the pen, introducing characters to memories like old friends, frantic as a cardiograph, scratching out the lines, a fever of confession, a catalog of crime in happy hour. Do you cry in happy hour? Do you hide in happy hour? The pilgrimage to happy hour. And then fucking Rothery comes in with that dive bomb and just starts fucking shredding everywhere. And I'm just like, oh, so, you know, we're, we're, you know, 90, 120 seconds in and I'm done already. 
the lyrics here, you know, if you're in a bar and you're you're and you want to write what's going on in the bar, there's a way to do it, and then there's a way to do it. And, and Fish took the way to do it. <laughs> he really, he he just he is very so descriptive and beautiful. He just uses colors here that are are striking, and just to describe what's going on in the room it's done like like no other he is at the top of his game here i mean just off off the bat and it was interesting that he i think it's the third verse when he brings torch in and you know really he's talking about the 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 ticking of the pen and torch being in the scene you would say to yourself Okay, well, why is someone writing in a bar? Yeah, and uh, I'll I'll tell you as ridiculous as this is. When I moved to Huntington Beach, I was just sort of had this sort of dichotomy where like I wanted to be mixed with people and sort of interact, but like I always hated the people who I interact with, and it was sort of I would show up by myself. And have a pad of paper and be writing things. I was used to doing it in cafes because you know cafes the more, more socially acceptable thing to do when you, you know, you can write in a cafe and no one's really gonna look at you weird. But you show up at a bar and you're like writing, you know, in a pad, <laughs> a pad of paper, and you know people are like what the what the fuck is up with this guy? Um, and it, it sort of is sounds insane, but. When you're in a, a certain place of mind, um, you want to be the artist and you want to um, take in the environment. You, it's an environment that you don't is dirty. It's an environment that you sort of maybe don't like, but that's your world and you want to somehow embrace it. And to see that third verse amid the you know painting of the picture i think is is very engaging and adds another dimension to to the song but i mean again and then we're talking about like rothery i mean i mean there's just so many things here that work but i mean this is a wonderful way to start on an album and and when we talk about that rothery and and actually the 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 dive bomb solo is his second solo already in the in this song i mean rothery is is he's a bit more manic on this than we have seen him. Am I wrong here? It's cool. It works for the song, but yeah, I yeah. think this is always beautiful. This, this first three song suite. And I always love when Marillion performs this live because they always do the three of them together. It, it's so perfect the way it all kind of flows together. But the, the last lyrics that close out the hotel hobbies section, you know, again, it's just one of those very vivid pictures that he writes New shadows tugging at the corner of his eye, jostling for attention as the sunlight flares through a curtain's tear, shuffling its beams as if in nervous anticipation of another day. Oh, and then it it switches over and and Kelly comes in with the uh, with the intro to um, to warm wet circles. Absolutely love it. This might be a good time to. One of my overall notes for this album is how amazing. Mark Kelly is on this album. I think that so many elements, and I brought this up in an earlier episode, are the success of this band, not just the the melody. And Mark Kelly on this album 
there's an energy on this album that he he sticks with throughout. He has these melodies on the on the keyboard that really cements this era. You you think okay, well, Fish cements this era. The first four albums, it's Fish, but overall, when you think of Marillion and the these early albums, these keyboard um, phrases and these keyboard melodies and the aggression, as you you mentioned, Joe, this is um, a very uh, a, an aggressive album. And it's hard for a keyboard player to sort of find their their place in something like this. And he just, he's the sound of Marillion here, I mean, with, with these keyboard uh, phrases. I agree with everything you said, Tom. And one of the things that struck me and one of the notes that I made about this album overall, there's room enough for all four of the, of the musicians to operate. No one is getting on anyone's toes. Everyone has their, their room to do stuff. But, but particularly... Kelly and Rothery seem to really integrate themselves so well together. And, and I, you know, I thought back to when we would have the conversations about certain eras of Yes and Howe and Wakeman sort of fighting for, for space, whereas Kelly and Rothery, they both get to do the things that they want to do, but they do it in a way that is constructive to the other. It's, it's really quite amazing, I think. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Joe, because that we talked a lot about how Ian Mosley and Pete Ruevas have found their their mojo in the last two albums. Individually, Mark Kelly and Stephen Rothery go to great lengths and they grow and they just get better and they're and they're finding their sounds. But this is where they cross together and they work together. And like some of my favorite moments are like in warm wet circles where Really, like Rothery's playing the guitar melody, and then later on, Mark Kelly's playing a harmony with it. That exchange goes on throughout this album, and we'll hear that, you know, for the next 30 years. Yeah. And it's magical, and I really feel like this is the first time we're, we're hearing it. To me, it's a huge step in, the, in solidifying the, like, the, the music and the sound of this band. And I love how you brought up Yes, because I think of this as long distance runaround like that perfect mm. guitar keyboard duet that persists through that whole song yeah warm wet circles i think there's a lot a lot going on here I, i've got two main points that i would kind of like to make one is uh, and, and again this may be me stretching i'm hit i'm struck always by the connection to the party as soon as i hear you know, parts of this. So when we're talking really? about as the glancing headlights of the last bus kiss adolescence goodbye in a warm, wet circle. So if we go to the lyrics for The Party, which was two albums later, sung mm -hmm. by Hogarth, and I haven't had an opportunity to see if Hogarth or Helmer penned those lyrics. She took a bus ride to a name and a number, a house full of music and a hat full of wonder. Then it's 12 o'clock and the last bus is gone. They're going to go crazy when they hear what she's done. So you have this, this same fundamental image, this, this metaphor, if you will, of the last bus is gone and this a girl vehicle? has made this decision. What's that, Ken? A vehicle. A vehicle. That's right. A metaphorical vehicle. I, I always find that to be a little striking. Like I said, I'm, I'm always looking for these sort of little threads that, that go other places. I'm going to make three, <laughs> three notes then. So there's that. 
there is the different metaphors for warm, wet circles. Obviously, we have the circles from the glasses on the bar. We have the kisses from the lover. And then when that doesn't work out, you've got the condolence kisses from the mother. So you've got, you know, these different layers again. Fish is using the same words, the same metaphor, but they mean such different things throughout this song. And the last point that I'm going to make about this this song, the dancing beams of the Phaedra Lighthouse section freaking slays me. Oh, my God. I think it is so powerful the way that Fish delivers that. Lyrically, it's great. And Ken, to your earlier point, I think he's able to bring a certain power to that vocal delivery without shrieking at us, which is an important thing. Well, he sings to us with great control and melody in the beginning, and then he lets it loose without necessarily shrieking at the end. I do appreciate that. Steve Hogarth wrote The Party. Okay. He was trying to capture the feeling of teenage parties uh, he went up to in Yorkshire. A similar imagery they were trying to capture there, so that would that would explain. Flip the page on my notes, and I've got another one. Surprising. The other thing that gets me is oh, the very end of this. I love these little outros that, that Fish puts in here. It was a wedding ring destined to be found in a cheap hotel, lost in a kitchen sink, or thrown in a wishing well. Couple different things here. One, that is a just a god awful, painful declaration, right? It's like this was doomed from the start. This was never going to go anywhere. Um, which is it, it's it's heart wrenching in in a certain regard. But again, it takes me back now to Emerald Lies when you got the line about set the wedding rings dancing on the cold linoleum. And we talked about this in, in script and in Fugazi, how Fish was sort of practicing these lines and these images. And I think here he lands it particularly well. There is a fine line that Fish is really good at, that he rides this line where you have very dark material here, okay? But the melody is so beautiful. He has such a beautiful sense of melody when there there needs to be a little room before you go like oh my god like this is so depressing he sort of keeps you in it with a haunting melody but a beautiful melody and this song in particular warm wet circles sort of epitomizes that there is a bleak story being told but you don't think of it as totally bleak because you have this beautiful melody this beautiful performance and it's it's bringing you in hook line and sinker so i mean and listen we could talk about this with a lot of the you know 90s hard rock stuff a sound garden or you know alice in chains really i mean if you have that that's a, that's probably a better example you have very dark material but you have beautiful melodies and that dichotomy really has always attracted me i mean i've never shied away from from darker material so i don't know if it would normally bother me anyway i don't think of this as a totally dark album i went for a hike on saturday and i went through this canyon and i had it cranked and um it sort of uplifted me it was a wonderful walk i wasn't sort of like kicking the dirt going oh my gosh i'm so depressed so i think there's a there's a really nice way that marillion takes a dark subject matter and uplifts you. And this song in particular is, 
I think the best part of that. That's awesome, Tom. I don't find it uplifting, but I do find it somewhat therapeutic. You know, like if I want to wallow in my own personal sorrow or melancholy over whatever, this is what I want to hear. <laughs> and um, and I, and I don't know that I ever necessarily feel uplifted, but I definitely feel it's okay for me to allow myself to, to feel those feelings. And it's extremely emotional. I just loved how you, you know, mentioned that uplifting because it hits me in a different way, but I, I, I think I can relate to what, what you're describing. For me, one of the coolest things about the transition into that time of the night is that low bassy kind of dun dun, you know, is all in like five. And like the first verse is in that and Rothery soloing over that. But then like somewhere like around two minutes, I guess, into the song, when Mark Kelly starts in with the piano melody, you don't even realize that you, your your brain has been kind of programmed into this beat of five, because it's almost coming across like a heartbeat. And when he goes into that piano melody, it's an eight or four, four, whatever. But it's so, there's such a release in that slight change and and the music and the piano melody to me this is the climax of the album like you know that's where it's all at paul i'm glad you sort of dissected this section the way you did because i you know it was funny last week we were talking uh about transitions in, on misplaced childhood we were talking about how great the transitions were and when i was listening to this this week i was like this is the their best transition between these yep. songs. The transitions between the first three songs are, I, I agree with you, they're top-notch, the best they've ever done, I think. In this article that I was reading, the inside story behind Merlion's Clutching at Straws, there was talk about how they were trying to force all of these songs to like fit together, sort of like Misplaced Childhood, and it wasn't working out. And they just kind of abandoned that idea because they were like, okay, well, we just can't do that again. I thought, wow, I remember this album tracking really, really well after these three, right? So even though there's, there aren't these transition, I think the album tracks really well with the exception of this going under that they sort of slid in there that I, I, I don't know if I remember it from before, but it just, after you get through this, tr this trilogy of songs or this suite and you get to the end of the short straw, like, all I want to hear is just for the record. Like, I don't want yeah. to mess around with, with this other stuff, this other business that shows up, even if it's only three minutes long. Since you brought in Going Under, we already covered the fact that it is the hey you of Clutching at Straws. And even even I, who absolutely love this song, it's it's impossible to to deny the fact that it, it interrupts the flow of this album. I still remember listening to that cassette version that I probably dubbed a copy of that goes right from that time of the night into just for the record. And that is a much easier transition. There's some value in going under and I think it's beautiful and it really speaks ultimately to sugar mice, but there isn't really a good place to put it. And, and it's, it's interesting when we get there, right? Cause I agree with you. I think this album tracks exceptionally well even on such a jarring transition as White Russian into Incommunicado. Thematically, those songs, had, they couldn't be further apart from each other. That's true. And, and yet, it, it goes by like it's nothing. But we're not there yet. 
I think maybe some of you are not liking going under as much as you do is because it's just butt up against the best of the best. I mean, there's a, a song like That Time of the Night is absolutely stunning. I, I would just say that I think you put anything after that, it's not going to quite match up. But, I mean, I don't know. I, I think going under, I, I, I never thought of it as the redheaded stepchild of the album. I I, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of... We called it the Hey You of the album, not the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> okay. okay. There's still time. Maybe in another five or six years, we'll come around. Okay, okay. I mean, and, I've and, always and liked Hey You as well. I mean, I, it, I, I was actually shocked when Paul was you know originally he was talking about hey you like he didn't like and i was like oh my god hey you this is such a great song so i'm i'm just you know again i'm like completely on another side yeah and and like it's not that it's a bad song i think you just said it best you you have it at the best of the best the follow-up to that for me i need i need a release i say let's jam it out in seven eight and just go for it you know i had an itchy finger trigger on the on the steering wheel on the skip button (laughs) <laughs> you know, and you know, it's this song kicking. Oh. Seven eight. So you're talking about just for the record? Yes. It could be seven four or seventy, but I don't know. But yes, that's what I'm talking about. And I dig it. And and I think this is where, you know, again, the the use of the writer as the as the central figure really starts to pay dividends in, in terms of lyrics. I find the the layered solo section to be absolutely delightful. And, you know, with the one line that really, really jumped out at me is when you say I've got a problem, that's a certainty, but I can put it all down to eccentricity. I just, there's just something about that, that I love that, that whole section. It's like, it's, it's still truthful, yet it's whimsical, right? Because the music at that point, like sort of recapitulates that seven, eight beginning but but it's different, right? It's like a it's like a variation on that theme, and and Fish delivers those lyrics as a variation on yeah. the the theme he was. It's just it's just so well done, like musically the way it's all put together. I love the last line. Just for the record, I can stop any day. That is like the classic stereotypical line of all the lines to love. I know, right? Yeah, but but like it's like th- a- that's that line just reminds me of my dad because. He came home from work every day and made a pitcher of Manhattans. Pitchers of Manhattans. I would drink them. And every once in a while, he would just be like, I'd be like, what, Dad? No Manhattans tonight? And he goes, nope, tonight, I'm, I'm, not ha- I'm not doing it. I need to prove to myself that I can go without it. And I was like, okay, that, if that's what you got to do, that's fine. And, and like that line just always reminds me of my dad. That's all. That will come back to pay dividends as well, but yeah, I, I do, I do appreciate sort of the, um, you know, the import of of that line, given where we're going to go. There are some parallels that we're going to be talking about. Certainly, when we talk about the Peter Gabriel solo albums and the Fish solo albums, we know that you know Peter Gabriel was a big inspiration to Fish. I find that. There are two things that these guys do that completely blow me away. I know in the early Genesis albums with Peter Gabriel, they would all talk about the rhythm section was doing in in Genesis. The rhythm section was like so busy and like the music sections were really busy at times. They had to put lyrics and a melody over this like very busy piece of music. Peter Gabriel did an incredible job at doing that. It, it, again, it may not have been commercially 
you know, what Genesis would eventually become. But to me, he, he did these really interesting things rhythmically. It was almost out of necessity. Well, with Fish, I was listening and I was sort of singing along. I was having a hard time singing along, not because of the, the pitch, but like the rhythm. Like he just does these things that he just reinvents the rhythm, like with melody. And he, it's just he in, anticipates and then he just has it flow in this sort of way that like only he can do. It, it's like almost like superhuman. I mean, because, I, I, you know, I sort of joke around and um, I know you guys probably hate it when I do this, but talking about like um, when when David Lee Roth does some of his like screeching, <laughs> he does it with like two tones. Okay, he he does some of these like David Lee Roth screeches, and there's like yes. multi tones coming out, and it's like to me, it's like you know who the hell could ever do this? This is like one of a kind, like this is like superhuman. And musically, Merlion isn't as busy as the early Genesis, so. Marillion gives a little bit more space to fish than Genesis gave to Peter Gabriel. Still, there is a lot going on musically, and somehow there's this like, wonderful gem that happens between the poetry, the voice, the melody, and the rhythm, which is often forgotten. Like I and I didn't even think of it until today. Um, trying to sing this stuff because uh, I was like thinking like it's a good thing like really never you know was like super popular with, like doing like karaoke stuff because no one could ever get the rhythm right <laughs> for the karaoke I mean forget the pitch I mean the rhythms my so, my that, buddy does my does I, karaoke I can only imagine yeah hey Scott I'd like to do uh, Marillion's just for the record <laughs> could you imagine if Marillion did a different kind of fish just like uh, Van Halen did a different kind of truth where they brought back their old singer and just let him go wild hmm. could you imagine Marillion fans would freak wow. I might be a little bored but Marillion fans would freak I don't know I fantasize about that like almost every day Ken. I was worried about that let's keep moving I'm, I'm good you know talking about all of that kind of in some way leads us into white Russian which is I don't think this is the first Marillion mantra but this is this is probably the most obvious and memorable one Uzi's on a street corner is not your average everyday mantra but it is one that sort of grabs your attention and we go from seven eight to uh, six yep very and interesting. It, it feels delightful. So I gave this song a, a rough ride the first go round. And I want to say our friend from the UK, Bodkin Van Horn, sent some messages. I think it was him who sort of gave some context around like what like his experience was during this time when this song came out and some of the some of the racial strife and some of the other things that were going on that I think Fish is referring to in, in some of these. I, since then, have listened to this in a much different light. And that Uzi's on a street corner mantra, which I poked a lot of fun at, is, is, is I don't find quite so humorous nowadays, is all I'm trying to say. I think thematically, you just have to remove this. This is this is an intermission from our, our writer story, right? This is... This is something else altogether that for, you know, potentially obvious reasons, you know, the band felt that needed to be here. I think, you know, again, musically, Ken, I think I think your 
your view is is almost supported here in that musically this needs to be in here it just it it flows together wonderfully and like i said even from just for the record through this into incommunicado and and what fish is doing on top of those three things are entirely different from each other and i guess incommunicado on, on a certain is is part of that intermission as well it fits in perfectly it's it's a very very powerful song there are, and and we still get some of these wonderful fish lyrics poppies at the cenotaph I remember when we were talking in the Pink Floyd segment, I think the poppies came up on for the cover for the final cut as a symbol of, of remembrance in, in, at least in Britain. I think it's related back to World War I and the poppy fields of France, but I don't know that for a fact. Um, so if I get it that wrong, I apologize. But the point is, poppies at the cenotaph is, is some you know imagery that we've come across before. But one of the lines that really, really just if I think about it, it just gives me goosebumps. The more I see, the more I hear, the more I find fewer answers. That's such a great way to express that. He's emphasizing, he's repeating that more. The more I hear, the more I see, the more I find, but what I'm finding is less. So the more I'm getting, the less I'm actually finding. And I just, I think that's such a freaking beautiful way to express that sort of frustration that you can get with regards to some of this. And then the one that that I find moving, haunting, disturbing, jarring, whatever the, the it is, is to stand up and fight. I know we have six million reasons. We all know where those where that that comes from, right? The import of that, the the right. The cost to the Jewish population of the Holocaust. That's the six million. And throughout this entire song, it's like, hey, we've got to keep our eyes open. We can't let this sort of stuff happen again. And, and again, he comes back with, I know we have six million reasons. And I find that, you know, again, here we're treated immediately out of that into another blistering Rothery solo that I feel really acts as a very appropriate exclamation point to that statement and and it just it just it i find it extraordinarily powerful courtesy of genius.com the sixth track from clutching and straws continues the story of torch and his struggle with self-doubt and alcoholism white russian deals with the rise of neo-nazism and violence in europe during the 1980s and the alarm it triggers in the protagonist it was inspired by an encounter fish had with a jewish american dj working in Austria, while Marillion were touring there in 1986. It was an election year, and the DJ was troubled by what he saw as anti-Semitism in the campaigning of some parties. He was ordered not to voice his own thoughts on the air, and ultimately resigned. This is kind of moving. It's an actual DJ that he met. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Hmm. I mean, it's not, the story's not awesome, but it's awesome that we know the story that's behind all this. Indeed. The title is a play on words and say white Russian is both a cocktail and a term for Russian anti-communists in the early 20th century because the white Russians or white guard were often associated with anti-Semitism. The phrase combines two of the song's key elements and a double entendre. Mm. Double entendres are right up Fish's Alley. That takes us into incommunicado. Now, as I mentioned a little bit ago, this is so not white Russian. I mean, this is just, 
Is it fair to say this is just a romp? I mean, I think back to the video for this with with um, with Fish, and it's at some point when he's talking about the I want to do adverts for American Express cards. I want to say, and I haven't had a chance to watch the video, but I want to say he's like in full kilt with the little beanie hat, and he's got like this big mustache going. Does anyone else remember that at all? I don't know that I remember that. No. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just. And and at some point they're they're doing um they're, they're doing the the Rockettes line kicking thing I think and uh. I just there there's just there's so much about this um it, it's it the band is just having fun it it sounds like it's a it's it's a fun riff to play um, lyrically and 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 everything else it's fun the video was fun and it's funny that you can. You can listen to White Russian, which is so heavy and so important, and go into Incommunicado, which is so superfluous, and yet it doesn't feel jarring at all. It's amazing to me. This might be the misunderstanding of clutching at straws, <laughs> except, that, except that it's way better. <laughs> it's a lot better. Oh. Yeah. I'm not even going to argue that point. And the inside story behind clutching at straws, you know, Chris Kimsey walks in with some A&R guy and they are listening to all the bits that, that Marillion is working on. And, you know, he hears this and he's like, this is going to be the single. He's the impetus around this one getting some extra attention. There, I mean, it seemed like everything around this time, there was different disagreement between what the band wanted and what Fish wanted. But I think Fish was like, cool, I like that. I kind of want to do a little bit more straight ahead rock stuff. I do also like the fact that in the situation where the producer comes in and says, okay, this is going to be the single you know, let's make this a hit, you know, Fish kind of takes the opportunity to do his best, uh, you know, stab at, you know, the irony of, yeah. of, uh, of the situation with lyrics. That's funny. Oh, I, I, I left this out of my long list of um, um, things that were like the wall, but nicer than the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Biting the hands at feed list. Yes. 2020. Incommunicado is to um, season's end hooks in you. It sort of has that. Yeah, it does. The, the oh, riff yeah. is similar. Yes, sir. It's like the rock version, more straightforward. Without the without the boss super distortion pedal being employed in uh, Incommunicado. Right, right, right. One thing that's really fun about this is the sort of the throwback to the Mark Kelly of Garden Party era. With his like, you know, the keyboard going up there, like it's it's kind of like a throwback, and you know, you can just kind of feel, imagine the energy that that the audience must have felt, you know, list, you know, hearing this song at this era of the band. That's off to Mark Kelly. He's the less is more guy. He just gives you what you need to get the feeling without ever overdoing it. Yeah. I was trying to come up with a way to reorder this album so it was less dismal. And of course, that started with <laughs> Incommunicado in the leadoff spot, but then the rest of it was just without a breather. So I didn't know what to do. Yeah. So just start out with the least depressing song on the album. And yeah, it can only get better from there, Ken. <laughs> the album's too long for me. So we're, we're, we're coming up on this section where I start to really wonder what I'm doing. Oh, wow. See, I think this is where things start to get really, really interesting. But 
So Torch Song, we had mentioned this, I believe it was last week as well. This is this is hyperbole gone wild. You know, when you're hiding 29, you know it ain't a crime to burn a little brighter now. I mean, it's it's self-indulgent to the extreme. Speaking as as 50 or near 50-year-old men at this point, you're like, dude, get the hell over yourself. But at the same time, you can kind of remember the, the hubris that goes with being in your 20s. And, um, you know, I, so I, I kind of get it. And, and even that being said, I absolutely love the lyrics here. There's there's a lot that I, I really it kind of tickles my fancy. My favorite, and I believe I mentioned this at some point in the past, and I would when back in the days when life was more normal and I would actually go to work and I would be walking from my office to some other office or something, I was prone to singing quietly to myself, Doctor says my liver looks like leaving with my lover, need another timeout now. I just I <laughs> Just I was that struck me. I thought it was absolutely spectacular. And, and the wonder, other thing, I wonder how many other songs, aside from Torch Song and Close to the Edge, mention the liver. <laughs> That's a great question. We'll have to get the uh, research department on that and see what we can figure out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The research department doesn't seem particularly enamored <laughs> with that task. <laughs> An another note that I have down here, and, and I think it's just because there's more opportunity maybe to listen to him. Ian Mosley is tasty on this whole album, but certainly on this song. I love what Ian brings here. And, and it's a shame because we, we here in the Palaver generally don't spend a lot of time talking about the drummers, usually. But I, I do think that Ian Mosley adds something very special to this album, but certainly this song in particular. I think he just – he has – everyone else sort of steps back a little bit, and you're able to focus a little bit more on the drums, I think. And, mm -hmm. and what you hear is absolutely delightful. And then as we move into the next song, Pete gets to step up and say, hey, we've got a pretty good bass player over here too. <laughs> Because I mean, well, initially I, this was my favorite song on the album. Uh, going back, you know, to previous listens, before I really bought into Incommunicado. Mm, okay, the the waltz of Slant Maha had me thrilled. This is this is, this is um, I don't know, crack for my ears. Is it okay? Yes. This is the big payoff for the the, the writer storyline, right? This is where you you get, you know, you can almost imagine. I think Tom, in the scenario you were you were sort of alluding to, you can almost imagine that at this point, Torch has either been in this bar long enough, or he's been going long enough that you know there's this little community there, and they all know that he's a writer, and they want to know what it is he's writing. And when you declare the point of grave creation, they turn around you and ask you to tell them the story so far. I just, you can, you can envision that really easily. Well, what, what came out, you know, and just, I, I love, I love that imagery, the, the point of grave creation, right? That moment where the, the idea has come out of your brain through your, the muscles in your hand and this pen onto a beer mat from previous songs and, and you you've created something you've created 
a story, a character, or whatever it is. And and I just I find that to be so moving the way that he expresses that. And of course it's it's juxtaposed with being in a bar and, and drinking your face off and, and everything else. So I'm fixated on this. Even though I can't pronounce the uh the title. Yeah, I think the the worst part of the song is just not being able to pronounce the title. So I but, think Tom, how did you not hang out in Irish bars in Boston? It's all slante. <laughs> Well, so I, I think that I did actually with um, tr- trust me I did the best the <laughs> best pronunciation I can find right now on the internet is Salanchama or Salanchana it's almost like Salanchama it's not even it's not even the way it sounds yeah I I actually it's almost like one one word but I, but I, here's something interesting my good friend Ray Sullivan who's very Irish whenever we toast he always says Salancha like he leaves out the the second word. So I think That's, that there yeah. is regional differences on how you would, you know, cheer someone if you're in the northern kingdoms. And Salanchama seems to be the uh, Scottish. Oh, I like that. Okay. I mean, what I've heard in Irish pubs is if you're simply saying the first word, slante, there's a, a little A at the end of it. But if you're saying both words, it's just slant mahaj. Now, when Fish says it, there's like a letter J sound implied in the... Mahaj, but uh, basically, slant maha. What you said, I still can't say. Sometimes it it sounds like an H sound. Yes, I've always heard it as like, uh, like shalancha, like like there's like a sh at the beginning of it. So maybe some of our good friends from the UK can uh, give us us. a cheer on. It's open season on shalancha ma. Shalancha ma. This was their opener for many, many years, was it not? Uh, it may have been. I honestly don't know, Paul. It's a good way to open. Yeah, I agree. And then we get sort of to the, the big ending. So, Sugar Mice, let's just consider for a second the phrase Sugar Mice in the Rain. Mm. There's a lot of imagery packed into those, what's that, five words? Mice, small timid, unassuming. Sugar can be extraordinarily beautiful, and yet in the rain, obviously completely impermanent. There's a tremendous amount of vulnerability that is expressed in those five words, and ultimately is expressed in this song. I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I will ask the members of the palaver here who have children can you hear Fish sing the lines, Daddy took a rain check, and not just feel kicked in the gut imagining that? I think I've done a, a pretty good job of you know being present for my children for the most part. I mean, we all have those moments where you know your parenting skills completely break down and you do absolutely the wrong thing. We know what that feels like. But I... I can honestly say I've never been in a position where I would have to say to my child, I'm sorry, I kind of checked out on that one. That's on me. I'm close enough to it that I can imagine it. And even just imagining the the pain of that type of confession to an individual who is here through your agency, it tears me up. Absolutely tears mm-hmm. me up. 
and and I still love the song. It's it's beautiful. It's just it puts me as close to being flat out sad as I ever get on this album. Really interesting, Joe. You know, I had similar feelings listening to this song, but I didn't put two and two together as far as my love for this song. I remember this is one of the songs I would like listen to on repeat yeah. when I was in in the Berkeley dorm rooms and I would just like I just just really blew my mind. But it was more of a sort of romantic living the dream, you know, the sort of alcoholic writer right. who, you know, wants yeah. to, you know, do his own thing. And you're very you're very selfish in that in the twenties. When I was listening to it twenties, I was maybe listening to it with a different set of ears that was sort of enlightened by this 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 darkness whereas when i listened to it recently i found it to be on the, on the pathetic side and i didn't have sympathy for the character yeah i was sort of yeah. like oh god you know dude you fucked up and i don't really want to hear about this now <laughs> and uh, there is this sort of romantic nature when you're you're in your 20s and you you go to the bar and you get smashed and you you know you can do fucked up things to yourself and to other people. And it's because, you know, in your weird sense, you're an artist and you can sort of justify. You've sort of put certain people up on pedestals that you shouldn't have really put in in, in the first place. Then when you look back, like what, what Joe was saying, yeah, this line is heartbreaking. And I definitely have a different reaction to it. And I'm almost actually my stomach turns reaction. Yeah, I love the song, but I wouldn't be able to just go back and listen to it again. <laughs> I can listen to the whole album again, like the next day, but like I wouldn't be able to listen to the song again on on repeat because I'm sort of disgusted with the character at this point. Do we need to talk about the actual line? We're just sugar mice in the rain. No, sugar mice. I just had to remind myself. It's that sugary looking mouse food that looks i don't know easterish or something right yeah they're, they're not a far cry from peeps don't know that i've ever had a sugar mice but yeah or a sugar mouse but yes i think you're you're spot on one of the things that we've we've sort of danced around and we haven't we haven't invoked the the, the terminology with this record is sonic dissonance so we're we're having one experience with the music on this and and fish is giving us a different experience with the lyrics and 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 when i say when i say music i'm going to include the vocal line in there because a lot of times the vocal line is is in in, in perfect harmony with the music i think it, it it fits it works it has that that same sort of feel and i think that's how you can kind of for lack of a better phrase skate through some of these songs lyrically without really bogging down that's just a thought i have hmm, i like it and then the big big finish oh my goodness the last straw here we have payoff of our straw motif for the last time a reprise of the hotel hobbies padding dawn's hollow corridors but that's it at this point then it's you know it's it's time to pay the piper I'm potentially going to do a palaver blaspheme here and say 
on an emotional level, the way I react to this is extraordinarily similar to the climax of Brave. The subject matter, obviously, is entirely different. It's not a one-to-one, but the the musical and and vocal buildup and delivery, you know, you reach that moment. You, you feel the pressure coming, you feel the pressure coming, and it happens, right? And, you know, clearly Hogarth and Fish, two different cats with regards to that, but I react very similarly, and I absolutely love this. And when you get the clutching at straws mantra at the end, and you get Tessa Niles coming in and adding just that layer of texture that we haven't had ever in Marillion music, and you're like, whoa, okay. And I don't know if that was if that was Chris Kimsey brought that in or, or or how that came about, but I do think it's it's a nice little bit of special sauce on a really, really emotional climax of this record. It is a perfect ending. I always say, I mean, for me, I might want to hear, I might have wanted to hear a little bit more at the end. Believe me, I love this album so much, I don't want to end on a, on, a, on, a, on a bad note, but I sometimes feel that even though this last song is beautiful, we never quite get to where we are earlier. And even though there is a, a great climax here, we don't get to where we are with warm, wet circles. I've been brought to sort of grandiose places earlier on this album, but I don't feel we end at, at the height of where we could possibly have ended. So that that's my only real criticism of it. But I do agree with you, Joe. I mean, there is a, a wonderful build. I mean, it's awesome, and it's very awesome compared to the extended tracks that come after it. I'm not a big fan of Tuxon, and <laughs> I'm glad it didn't make the official album. But listening to it in the streaming service, it would go into these other songs and outtakes that didn't really serve the fluid composition beginning to end. It kind of detracted from that experience. So I, I do appreciate it ending here. As much as I love Slump Ha, I uh, get a little tired in there, and then and then I'm not quite the best Sugar Mice fan, and then this is a little awkward for me, but once they pull it together at the end, I can appreciate it. I mean, for me, the whole thing ends it incommunicado. It's like, okay, whew, I got my breather. I'm good. <laughs> you know, and, and the rest of this is like, I'm just, I'm just behaving myself in church just to get through it. For whatever reason, this feels like musically the last song that Fish will be singing with the band. Like this just feels like, for yeah. whatever reason for me, it feels like the perfect finality to his era of Marillion. I don't know that I'm necessarily taken to those same places that, that you are, Joe, but I'm certainly going to go back and examine that aspect uh, a little bit more. Um, but I do find it to be incredibly satisfying. That brings us to the end of of Clutching at Straws. Like I said, I could I could probably go on for another 30, 40 minutes on those extended tracks that were on the uh, the redo and whatever it was that we talked about. Um, and, and their connection to Fish's solo albums as well as as season's end it's it's fascinating from that regard and who knows maybe if some weekend i'm home alone and bored maybe i'll record a little uh a little 
palaver for one bonus episode where I explore that a little bit. But for right now, I think we've certainly spent enough time talking about this record. And, and I think the last straw is a perfect place to end the discussion. So we won't, we won't belabor that point um, right now. And I think we'll, we'll close this out where we are. So as with everything we do on the, on the palaver here, I'm glad we did it. It's, it's been fun. It's been really enjoyable to sort of go back and talk about these first four albums that we blew through in that first episode. Oh, those many, many months ago, what, two and a half years at this point. And, and to be able to, to give them the full palaver treatment that we sort of developed in the intervening time. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's been fun. It's, it's been, it's been a great excuse to go back and listen to these records. As always, we, we try to learn some things. Paul, you made the point several times tonight. It's amazing how well this album turned out given the, the state of relationships in the band, although we've seen that before as well. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't be quite as surprised as we are. Yeah. A couple things to reflect on. I think Ian Mosley just put out a book, which I think uh, would be very interesting to uh, ponder, given our recent retracing of the early Marillion days and our um, current fascination with the current current lineup. I've also really enjoyed going back. I don't think I've ever enjoyed or loved Fish Marillion or even Fish himself more than I do right now in in um, in my musical journey. I'm super thrilled and excited that we're going to continue on and go through some of the Fish catalog. And then lastly, you know, Joe, you mentioned you thought it was interesting that Fish or you enjoyed the fact that that Fish didn't cast Torch as a rock star kind of, you know, music guy, but rather than as an author. In some ways, I've never really thought of Fish as a musician as much as a poet and a lyricist and a, and a singer. Not that singers can't be musicians. It's not what I mean. Yeah, no, I get, I get it. In what I've read of interviews of him is that, you know, with uh, Veltsmarch being released and and the, the p potential tour that, you know, he keeps postponing, his plans are to, you know, retire from music and and write. So it's, um, you know, somewhat prophetic uh, in its nature. Dream. The only way to cleanse myself of clutching at straws is an album about a puppy. I'm going to call it Cold Wet Nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, can we work up an album cover for that? Some album art for... Cold Wet Nostrils. Cold Wet Nostrils. Okay. Cold Wet Nostrils. <laughs> if, I love if, it. If, if Weird Al Yankovic did uh, Prague, and that that would be great. That would be all right. So so next uh, next week, gentlemen, we have the uh, besides themselves to look forward to. If that's the right phrase, I think that will be very very interesting. <laughs> and then we will go on to, and we'll start sort of our our parallel tracks, if you will, of solo Peter Gabriel and solo Fish in chronological order, if I recall how we agreed to do that. And I think that will be interesting to sort of see how that progresses, to use a turn of phrase. So I will thank you, gentlemen, for another wonderful episode of Palaver here this evening, and look forward to discussing more next week. 
you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the episode with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at ProgPala, or search for Progressive Palaver on all of those. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and a bunch of other services, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. He could be reading the ingredients off a pickle jar, because all I'm listening to is Stephen Rothery bending the shit out of that melody in the verse.